Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys who use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, October 9th, 2012. There's a lot of weird in this program today. I'm just saying. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, we live in a time where, uh, you know, the spirituality spirituality du jour of the day uh, spends a lot of time talking about religious experiences. Have you had uh, an experience with Jesus? Have you experienced life transformations? Have you experienced the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Have you experienced dreams and visions and, and experience and experience and experience and experience and experience and experience? And here's the problem. Okay. Your experiences. Um, well, they're no barometer or indicator of really anything pertaining to God's love for you, uh, whether your sins are forgiven or whether you have a right standing before God. And what poses as Christianity in the Christianity du jour oftentimes is a very cheap substitute that doesn't provide the assurance of salvation and a right standing before God that those who chase after these experiences would think. Okay, now you're thinking assurance. Well, let me stop for a second and think about a few things. Okay, um, in in the thing that passes as Christianity today, in Christianity du jour, um, the, what happens is is that well, there's very little assurance of salvation, and the reason I say that is is because Christ is not the center and substance of the preaching that goes on in much of the churches today. In fact, um, if you would challenge this notion, I would just simply point you to the archives of the sermon reviews that we review here at Fighting for the Faith. I have the world's largest collection of bad sermons uh, ever put together on the planet. I, you know, 
Yeah, I have the spiritual gift of dumpster diving for Jesus. But let me me put it this way, okay? I sample all kinds of different churches. And um, over and again, it doesn't matter if it's mainline liberal, seeker-driven, um, you know, or, you know, you pick your, you know, charismatic, Pentecostal, non-denom, whatever. The, you know, one of the common themes that you hear over and again by these uh, the pastors who lead these churches is talking about, you know, the, the need for experience. So, you know, here's how it goes. Because they don't have an emphasis on Christ and him crucified for our sins, on the objective word, because they think that, you know, baptism is something they do rather than believe what Scripture says about baptism, that baptism is actually God's work, okay? And you're going, I've never heard that before. Well, it's true, Okay. Just look at like Acts chapter 2. What does Peter say? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The conversion of Paul, uh, you know, Ananias says, rise and wash your sins away. Or Paul writing in Colossians says that in our baptisms, our hearts are circumcised by Christ. Who's the main, uh, who's the main person who's running the verbs when it comes to baptism? Not you. Uh, if you're being baptized, not the pastor who's doing the dipping, dunking, sprinkling, or whatever you know, you know, however you do your baptisms in your church, but um, the, the the verbs are all hanging on God. In fact, the you know when Peter says repent and be baptized, the Greek word for baptized is in the passive voice. In other words, you ain't doing it; it's being done to you. You know, and it, this is the way I explain it to people. You know, the passive voice is one of those things that, you know, we, we have a hint of it, kind of an understanding of it in uh, in the English language. In Greek, it's it's way clearer. You know, if, uh, if, you know, if I were to say, listen, I'm going to go and get a haircut, in the Greek, I would use the passive voice, basically making it clear um, that uh, I'm going to go and sit down and somebody's going to be doing the cutting. It's just that simple. Okay. So, uh, you know, in, you know, same thing, you know, if, if I were to, if I were to then switch to the active voice and say, I am going to cut my hair, uh, people would, whoa, you don't do that, right? You, you know, no, nobody cuts their own hair unless they got a Floby. And boy, let me tell you, I've seen people who've used that particular device. Just listen, okay, just trust me on this. Convenience is, is not more <laughs> important than accuracy when it comes to haircuts. So I'm just saying, so if you're using a Floby, yeah, um, <clears throat> just, you know, just me to you, um, you might want to consider just putting that thing away and going and visiting a real barber or, you know, a hairstylist or something like that, you know, and <laughs> just, so anyway, I'm off track, but he, here's the, here's the idea. So what happens is when Christ isn't placarded, where, you know, his work, his teaching, his his saving grace, his death and propitiation on the cross for your sins. Um, and I'm not talking about preaching the gospel only on an evangelism Sunday, which for the for some bizarre reason in a lot of evangelical churches, that's what it's reserved for. Bring your friends and family. We're going to preach. We're really going to, pre- the pastor's going to really preach the gospel this, you know, coming Sunday kind of thing. And so what happens is the gospel gets trucked out when, yeah, you're expecting people who aren't Christians to be in your congregation. But the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the church, the already existing church in Rome, read Romans, was excited about coming to Rome so that he could preach the gospel to them. And you're going, 
but uh, but they're already Christians. Right. Listen, you're you're going to stop needing to hear the gospel on the day in which you stop sinning. And you go, oh, yeah, because here's the deal. Um, we Christians have some mortal enemies, okay? Sin, death, the devil, you know, our own sinful flesh. Um, the Christian life is not easy. It's it's anything but. And, you know, with our own sinful flesh, the devil and the world warring against our Christian faith and, you know, warring against, you know, what it is that we believe, teach, and confess. Listen, the thing you got to hang on to is the gospel. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, I chose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. And, you know, and the idea is, is that if you're preaching the whole counsel of the word of God, you're, you can't help but preach Christ because Christ really is actually there in those texts, like throughout the Old Testament. You know, it's true. So anyway, I, I'm digressing. So he, let me get, kind of reel this all back. I spun off in five different directions. Let me reel them all in and make the main point. And that's this. I think one of the reasons why so many people are chasing after these religious experiences is because they think that if I go to church and I'm able to experience the emotional high and 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 that emotional love thingy weird you know that goes on in church okay right that that experience somehow validates and gives me some kind of assurance that I have a right standing with God but here's the problem Okay, that is that is like building your house on sand. Feelings are transitory. Feelings are fleeting. And what you're basically doing is going to church to get assurance. And the assurance is caught up in your emotional experience, which you think is a religious experience. I think most of the time it's really not the Holy Spirit like at all. And so if you go to church and the feelings are flat what are you going to do? Well, what's the conclusion? Oh, no. Maybe God's mad at me. Why am I not feeling him the way I've felt him in the past? And if you're thinking that this just sounds preposterous, talk to people who are in these churches. I've been to these churches. I've experienced this all myself where, yeah, you go to church and, you know, it the, the, the it just wasn't there. You didn't feel the spirit moving. And, and questions that come to mind are, oh, no. Is the reason why I'm not feeling the spirit moving because I've done something wrong? Maybe I've sinned and and I've grieved the Holy Spirit and he's no longer letting me have these religion. You see what hap- is happening at this point is you're determining your standing with God not based upon the objective word of God that says if those who are in Christ are are saved. Those who are in Christ, their sins are forgiven. Not through the objective proclamation of the forgiveness of sins before God. What happened, you know, see, that's how you know you have a right standing before God, right? It's something objective and it's outside of you. It's not inside of you. And so what happens is, is that if you're looking for assurance of your salvation based upon the latest, you know, you know how strong the liver shiver was when you were at the worship experience at the lo- local megachurch rock and roll uh, arena, right? And if the if 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 there just wasn't enough juice in that liver shiver, well, what did what's the conclusion? Well, maybe my standing before God isn't good. And it's like, oh, you you feel for people like this because ultimately subjectivity is a form. It's a subtle form of the law. 
and it doesn't provide any assurance of salvation. If if anything, it could cause utter despair because, you know, we've got published studies that show now that a lot of the so-called spiritual experiences that people are feeling in these big mega churches, you know, with the big rock and roll shows and stuff like that prior to uh, the uh, the you know four verses out of context self help pep talk, um, which is supposed to be a sermon. Um, that um, that you know these these experiences of euphoria they're feeling, uh, it's all explained by brain chemistry. It has nothing to do with God the Holy Spirit. It's it has to do with brain chemistry. And the thing is, with something like that, um, <clears throat> those types of experiences over time wear off. They don't quite hit the same peak. They don't quite hit the same emotional charge. And when that happens, it throws people into confusion and despair and robs them of assurance of their salvation because they're looking to that to determine whether or not they've got a, they're in with God or not. But that's not where the Scripture points us to look to as to whether or not we're in with God or not. Scripture points us to our crucified and risen Lord. And Scripture also points us to things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. All of these things are objective outside of you and are not subject to your up-and-down fleeting emotions. Okay? So... Ultimately, subjectivity is a form of tyranny. Subjectivity is a false form of assurance that really, truly runs the danger of leaving those who are relying upon that as an indicator, a bellwether, some kind of a you know a needle on an instrument panel to determine whether or not they're in with God or things are okay. That's that's oh, that's that. Like I said, it's like building your house on sand. It's absolute tyranny and there is no assurance there and the sure thing that we're pointed to over and again is God's word which is all the more reason that pastors need to be in the biblical text preaching and proclaiming the whole counsel of the word of God what you know what did Jesus say you know when he was tempted by the devil man does not live by bread alone but by every word not some words every word that proceeds from the mouth of God well where can we go that where we can feast on and eat, you know, notice the, the word there, these words of God, all of them, right? Well, the answer is God's word. So if your pastor <clears throat> has got you chasing your subjective tail to deter, you know, and you're at this point determining your right standing before God as a result of how electrically charged the latest liver shiver was and the religious experience that you were having in, in, with the rock and roll show, the the folks that's that's a dangerous place to build your faith on and and many people have had their faith shipwrecked because rather than pointing to Christ the solid rock instead they build their religion on the shifting sands of emotion and experience and that's no place to build the christian faith and that's not what christian faith uh, the, uh, the scriptures point us to instead we're to be in the word in the word and not, not not using it as a means to an end, uh, you know, for your religious experience or things like that. In the word, studying, marking, inwardly digesting, understanding the whole scope of what is revealed in God's word, doctrines, dogma, and all. So, 
All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I got a Patricia King gang update. Um, have you all ever heard of something called prophetic arts? This is a new one by me. <laughs> you know, it, it takes a lot to kind of surprise me and kind of catch me off guard. I mean, I've you got to admit, I have seen just about everything you could possibly see, at least I think. Um, you know, from all kinds of different religions as well as within the, you know, all the different bizarre spectrums that of, of the visible church in Christianity. But I have never heard of prophetic arts. So uh, we got a <laughs> Patricia King gang update, some guy talking about prophetic arts. And uh, and then I got a, a, a quick uh, Paul Crouch update, Paul Crouch of uh, TBN. And um, yeah, he... He he was recently somebody recently published a photograph in OC Weekly. If you're familiar, when I lived in Southern California, OC Weekly is really it's just horrible publication. I mean, just awful. Anyway, um, somebody there had taken a screenshot of uh, Paul Crouch uh, with a, a a particular hand gesture towards the cameras, and uh, and you know the question was whether or not he was. Um, uh, using uh, sign language to send a message to the cameraman uh, at TBN there in, in, in the Jerusalem studios of uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network. So, you know, I, I ended up publishing the photograph at the Museum of Idolatry, uh, but then I ended up calling TBN to see, you know, if you know if that le- was legit. And I was basically told that the hand gesture was completely unintentional. So with that and a r- some really good comments on my Facebook wall, I tweaked the editorial comment at the Museum of Idolatry for this particular thing. And uh, I want to talk about, you know, a, a kind of an issue that we have in the Christian church. And that is, is that with all the evil and heresy and bizarre things that are being taught out there, um, we really run the risk of completely being desensitized to the importance of um, of sound doctrine and uh, and a correct uh, revulsion to false doctrine. I want to talk about that. I've got a Rick Joyner update. Apparently, Rick Joyner recently appeared on Jim Baker's television show. Yes, Jim Baker of 1980s uh, PTL scandal and all that kind of stuff has a new television program and Rick Joyner was recently on there. Apparently he's embracing uh, the Mormon prophecy that's called the White Horse Prophecy. He's, he talks about it on Jim Baker's program. So we'll take a listen to that. I've got a Carl Truman twin spin that I want to get to and then a terrible sermon from South Hills Church in uh, Corona, California, Pastor Chris Songson, talking about conflict management. I mean, you know, talk about practical here. I mean, you know, I, you know, are you married? Are you in a relationship? Are you having problems with, you know, managing conflict and things like that? Well, don't worry. We've got a few verses we're going to take out of context for you. And next thing you know, you'll be able to manage conflict better in your relationships. After he- <laughs> after hearing that. So anyway, uh, make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, fuzzy bunny slippers, if you have them here in the uh, Midwest, in uh, central Indiana, where the uh, pirate Christian radio pirate cave is, um, it's been cold lately. We've had some frosty, chilly nights, and uh, we've had the cl- at night we've been closing the windows and, and put an extra blanket on the bed, and it's it's kind of... Uh, a foretaste of the winter to come. i just telling you it's, it's on its way here. So anyway, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Here we go. So um, uh, have you ever heard of the prophetic arts? Yeah, I, I haven't either until today. 
yeah, you, you might want to don um, your tinfoil pyramid hat. You know, anything that you can possibly think of to protect you from the radiation that we'll be emitting from the audio from this particular video. Here's Mark Thrall of uh, Extreme Prophetic from xpmedia.com talking about using the prophetic arts. Yeah, nothing comes to mind. It's just my mind draws a blank when I hear that phrase. But here's Mark Thrall to explain. Here we go. Hi, my name is Mark. I'm a performing artist, and I've done a lot with music, a lot with dance, and I've done some acting. And the Lord has really given me a desire to worship Him and to praise Him through a great deal of expression, through animated expression, through dance and through music, heartfelt melodies and heartfelt motion. And as I started doing these things, um, I started to discover the realm of the prophetic arts. In the-, the realm of the prophetic arts. <clears throat> Weird. I mean, so my, immediately my question goes along these lines. If the realm of the prophetic arts was something that is so important to Christianity... Why is it that it hasn't been discovered until, well, now, 20 centuries after the death and resurrection of Christ? How come, if the, the, if the prophetic realm is really a true thing that we really need as Christians, it's not talked about in the Bible? Um, you know, so this guy comes along, you know, 20 centuries after the founding of the church, and we're supposed to believe that this is something really important. In fact, we got to make a video about this prophetic arts realm that he's apparently discovered that so that other Christians can finally tap into this thing. I mean, it's been held back, apparently, by God from us. Yeah, I'm not buying it. ...midst of worship. And as I started to... Um, understand what I was doing just through through practice because Hebrews 5.14 says that discernment is learned by reason of use. Yeah, discernment. Discern, discernment. Not the prophetic realm. You, you, the fact that you think that there's such thing as prophetic arts realm shows a lack of discernment on your part. Meaning reason of practicing. You step out and you do it and that's how you learn discernment. And so as I was learning these things, the Lord began to, to show me how do I use motion, how do I use melody or harmony or different things um, to convey what the Spirit's doing, to partner with Him and release what He's trying to release. And the key scripture that He's given me is John 4.24, where it says, God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the part I want to... What does that have to do with prophetic arts? Like nothing. You're just like reading into that text something that isn't there. Focus on is the part of in truth today. Um, What he showed me um, was a scripture where Jesus is speaking. And this is in John 16, verse um, 13. It says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, that's Holy Spirit... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And so what the Lord was showing me was that Jesus presented the spirit of truth, and then he explained the model that the spirit of truth operated on, in that the spirit of truth does not speak on his own initiative, and whatever he hears, he will speak, and what... um, 
and he will disclose what yeah, and what does this have to do with prophetic arts i just am not seeing the connection at all but is to come and so the lord showed me with dance or with music or or anything that this could apply to was that when i step out and do these things i don't do it of my own initiative when i move i only move in such a way that is in agreement with what i'm receiving in revelation either things i'm seeing things i'm feeling things i'm hearing whatever kind of revelation that the so let me see if i have this straight okay if the holy spirit led you to do a pirouette we wouldn't say of that pirouette oh that was a great pirouette we would say oh that was so truthful <sighs> the lord is is speaking to me that's what i'm going to do and as I do that, what the Lord does is actually use my dance and I start to dance what I've noticed the worship team is about to do, where when I'm tuned into God, I will increase my motion and its intensity right before the worship team will start crescendoing. And he'll even show you right when a song is going to transition to a different part. <laughs> the... <laughs> Ah! Or when the song's over, and and I, at that point I would stop dancing, and then the worship team stops, and it's been really, really cool. So spirit-led, truthful choreography. I'm gonna bang my head against something. To to grow in that and discover it, and it all has to do with uh, relationship with the spirit of truth or relationship with Holy Spirit, because it's by Him that you know what to do, how to move, and where to go, and it's by His power that it impacts the, your environment around you. Yeah, this, you sound like, a, like a, a dancing Jedi, you know, somehow in tune with the movement of the Force. This has nothing to do with Christianity. How do I know? None of this is mentioned anywhere in God's Word. This is a chasing after the wind. It is purely subjective. There's, there's nothing that's going to help you out here, and this this isn't Christian at all. Oh, unbelievable. All right, moving along. From the Museum of Idolatry, you can find this at a littleleven.com. That's right, a littleleven.com. The headline reads, uh, Paul Crouch flips off cameras in Jerusalem? Question mark. Yeah, it's, it's a question mark there. It's not exactly a statement. It's a question mark. But um, so here's the story, okay? In fact, you know, if you want to see this, um, oh, man, if you want to see this, you can find it at a little11.com. And I have to warn you, it's not work safe. Just saying. I mean, so here's what I, here, here's what I wrote, okay? And th this actually took a little bit of kind of me getting into the groove of what was really going wrong here with a little help from some listeners and their comments on Facebook. And, and kind of use this to kind of work into a wider discussion, okay? Uh, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, but this picture of Paul Crouch of TBN, and it looks like he's <clears throat> flipping off the cameras there, um, only brings two words to mind. But here's, here's the idea. Focusing on the hand gesture and missing the bigger offense, well, that's really easy to do, and it's like missing the forest because of the tree. Uh, so to make sure that you don't do that, ask yourself an important question regarding the photo. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this photo. As I look at this photo, um, there's Paul Crouch of Trinity Broadcasting Network, okay, from his brand new Jerusalem studios, um, apparently on the Mount of Olives. Behind his left shoulder is, uh, well, the Dome of the Rock, 
which means that behind his left shoulder is the actual Temple Mount itself. Okay, now just for some historical insight here, um, the Temple Mount it's still it's it's really a big deal. Okay, because the temples that used to stand on that particular plot of property, okay. Um, had God's, you know, God had put His name on that place when Solomon dedicated the temple. Go and go read the dedication of the temple, okay, under Solomon. God visibly shows up, okay. His manifest visible presence uh, presence shows up. The the temple's a big deal, okay. I mean, it's an important site. It's and it's on Mount Moriah. Jesus is crucified not too far from the Temple Mount. I mean, it's a big deal, okay. But there's the Temple Mount over His left shoulder. And um, Paul Crouch is wearing, no kidding, a clerical collar. Okay, so just put us put this all together. Okay, so here's the question I ask of the of this particular photo: What is more offensive? Okay, now you know. Again, I called TBN, and they you know, the gal I talked to was very kind, very polite, very nice, and she said. You know that the 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 hand gesture was completely unintentional, and I asked for specifics, and she said that's all I can tell you. So, they just the hand gesture was completely unintentional. Did, did I believe her? I believe she believed well what she was told. So here's the deal. Okay, the the issue is is really this. Okay, what's the more important? What's more offensive? The hand gesture that Paul Crouch is is uh, is making, or you know, by the way, he's. Um, or the fact that Paul Crouch, who is a money-grubbing charlatan con man who has made millions upon millions upon millions of dollars teaching rank heresy, uh, it, it, and he's wearing a clerical collar and broadcasting his flim-flam from, the, from Jerusalem with the Temple Mount directly behind him. Okay, which is the bigger offense? The the hand gesture, which, prob- you know, for all intents and purposes, was you know probably just somebody grabbing a screen capture of you know of him making a weird motion, and they were able to cap you know and then put it up there. What's more offensive, that or the fact that he's wearing a clerical collar with the temple mount literally right behind him? Okay, and you know, and to kind of give you an idea of what um, Paul Crouch is really all about, here's Paul Crouch and his son. Discussing the fact that anybody, if you get in the way of TBN, well, you could probably die. Yeah, listen in. Quote from Papa Papa Bethany. Meekness is not weakness. It is velvet-covered steel. Bingo. And he was describing Moses in in one sense, but also his dear daughter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, so you know what? You know what's funny, Dad? There, there have been a few attempts in the TBN history to upset TBN, to stop TBN, to you know. There have been a few fools in the in the thirty eight, thirty nine year history coming up on forty years. And you know what? You know any attempt at stopping TBN, they have no idea who they're actually pushing into the corner. Oh, oh. You and mom get pushed in a corner, God help you. Well, that's, that's a lesson I've learned from you, seriously. God help anyone who would try to get in the way of TBN, which was God's plan and his purpose. I have attended the funeral of these two people who tried. Hello. 
Um, yeah, he's, he's attended the funeral of two people who tried to get in the way of TBN. I mean, that's just that's like the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so here, here's kind of the point that I'm trying to make, and I don't even know if I'm making it very well. But here, here's the idea: in our day and age, there is so much rank heresy. Okay, that it's really easy to not be offended by it anymore. I mean, the reality is, is that. I'm less offended by the hand gesture, which, by the way, is kind of stark to look at. I'm less offended by the hand gesture than I am by the fact that that man who teaches rank heresy, who's made millions upon millions upon millions of dollars fleecing people in the name of God, which, by the way, is what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. You want to know what it means to take the Lord's name in vain? Just watch TBN. That's what it means to take God's name in vain. It's to lie using his name. It's to fleece people and tell them that God's going to bless them and give them a miracle if you send in a $1,000 seed offering to TBN. That's what it means to take God's name in vain. This is a man who, I mean, I am more, I get more physically angry watching him than I do a flagrant sinner. Like well, like Madonna or uh, or Lady Gaga or something like that. I can't even I, I can't even watch any of those two uh, folks. They they, they, they uh, because I mean they revel in sin and glorify it and stuff like that. So the, you know Madonna and Lady Gaga don't even try playing those songs around me. I can't listen to them because of what they represent. But as as angry as Madonna and uh, and Lady Gaga make me, t, uh, Paul Crouch, you know it's double and triple. And the reason why is because this guy is sending people to hell and taking all the money out of their wallet in the process. It's absolutely disgusting. And the fact that he's wearing a clerical collar, you know, passing himself off as a holy man, and he's got the temple man over his left shoulder, that to me is far more offensive than the photograph where he he looks like he's <clears throat> flipping off the cameras there in uh, Jerusalem. That's far more offensive. But see, the thing is, in our day and age, I mean, when you think when you flip the channel and you come across that particular channel, TBN, and you and you look at it for like five seconds and you roll your eyes and whatever, right? Okay. The thing is, is that we've become desensitized to the fact that these people are sending people to hell. We've become desensitized to the offense that they are to Christianity. And the reality is, is that Literally, hundreds of millions of people's first exposure to Christianity, and you have to put that in air quotes, is as a result of the television, quote, ministry of TBN. And this is what happens when you don't, and when the church takes a tolerant view, a tolerant view of false teachers, false doctrine, and heresy and heretics. I mean, and the reality is, is that if those churches, you know, in the United States and around the world, who say they believe the Bible to be the Word of God, were to take a unified stand against TBN, they could probably make enough ruckus to you know, put a dent in their financial income to the point where maybe they would, you know, <clears throat> go out of business. But churches continue to remain, for the most part, silent, basically saying. Who am I to say anything? We just we, we can all just get along. I mean, that's their view. Yeah, it's kind of embarrassing. It's more than embarrassing. It's a blight on Christianity. And it sullies the name of Christ. And by not saying anything, I sometimes wonder if Christians are not complicit in their crimes 
by agreeing to just basically not say nothing. You know, just something to think about. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asked us to do the same. Uh Uh-huh, right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Furtick. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy. I want to invite you to register for the free Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally coming to the following cities the fall of 2012. These are one night and they're free, but you must register online at worldviewweekend.com. We're going to start out October 7th in Destin, Florida. Then we're on to Wichita, Kansas, Des Moines, Iowa, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
Rogers, Arkansas, Peoria, Illinois, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Rockford, Illinois. They're free, they're one night, and it's the Biblical Worldview Weekend Rally. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. That's worldviewweekend.com. Please post this on your Facebook, put it out to your email address book. Help us get out the word about these free fall 2012 Biblical Worldview Weekend Rallies. Speakers will include myself, Brandon House, along with Justin Peters, Mike Gendron, Jimmy D. Young, and a few others. Don't miss out on the fall Worldview Weekend rallies coming to these cities. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, subjectivity is actually slavery, not freedom. It provides no assurance of anything. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, I don't have any uh, update music for this next segment. I'm going to go ahead and I'm looking at my time here. Ran a little long on the Paul Crouch and the Prophetic Arts segments. I'm going to save Rick Joyner until probably Thursday. And instead, I'm going to do my uh, Carl Truman uh, twin spin. Um, somebody left a, a a link to a fantastic Carl Truman article that was re- – not an article, but um, video that was recently published on YouTube by Westminster Seminary out there in Pennsylvania, I think. And uh, Carl Truman is talking about the what he calls the creedal imperative. Have you heard somebody use the statement – and maybe you've used it. 
I don't have any creed but the Bible, or I don't have any creed but Christ, or something like that. Well, as well-meaning as that is, and as, as much as that sounds like it would be in accord with Sola Scriptura, it really isn't. And here's Carl Truman to explain why. Many Christians would say that they have no creed but the Bible. Uh, in actual fact, that's a rather specious comment. Uh, the division between Christians is not between those who have a creed and those who don't have a creed. The division really is between those who have a public creed that is set out for all to see and assess in light of Scripture, and those who keep their creed secret. They don't set it out in public, and it can't be assessed in the light of Scripture. That's exactly right. Now, I'm going to pause right there. You see, those people who say no creed but the Bible, they have a creed. It's just not written. You can't examine it. You don't know what its major tenets are, and it's hard to figure anything out. In fact, one of the things I find very difficult is uh, in you know when I do sermon reviews, one of the things I try to do is try to get some kind of a radar fix on the theology of a lot of the guys that I review here at Fighting for the Faith. And over and again, um, I find that it's very difficult to figure out what exactly they believe, teach, and confess because it's not anywhere where I can go to and really truly examine it. And uh, and so oftentimes you end up having to kind of backwards engineer their theology from what they're saying in their sermons, which is difficult to do. But, uh, in fact, one of the things I've noticed is more and more and more in uh, seeker-driven church websites, no longer do you have sections that you can go to where they've published what they believe. Um, our church believes this or our church believes that. In fact, oftentimes the uh, <clears throat> the statement of faith or the statement of belief or their creed or confession has been substituted with now the mission and vision statements uh, for their so-called churches. But uh, Carl Truman's making an important point. So the people who say no creed but the Bible, they do have a creed. It's just secret. It's not public information because they're they're not uh, they're not going to allow themselves to have their beliefs, you know, scrutinized in light of Scripture. He continues though. So I would actually argue that the phrase no creed but the Bible is deeply unbiblical. Paul himself seems to point towards the usefulness and the importance of creedal formulations within his writings. Uh, yeah, he does. I would point you to the most obvious one. The most obvious one from you know that you can catch in English would be First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen. First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Um, let me start. Uh, I'll start at verse three. Uh, three. Paul writes, "This is for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received." And here's the part that when you pay close attention to how this is written, this is one of the very first Christian creeds, and it's recorded for us in Scripture, written under the Holy Spirit of the Apostle uh, Paul here. Here's the creed, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is a creedal formula, okay? Now, another passage you could point to, um, by the way, in looking at this concept of um, uh, of a creed written in the Apostle Paul's writing is actually found in the book of Romans. Yeah, here it is. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Let me read it to you from the English translation, which uh, the ESV, which actually, <clears throat> I think, masks what's going on here in the Greek text. But uh, Paul writes, he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, which I think is a not not a good translation, 
the uh, the phrase there, the last part of the phrase, analogion tes pistios, okay, <clears throat> um, that I I think it's referring to what has become known as the analogy of faith or the rule of faith. That's really what this is getting at, and it's talking about a body of Christian teaching. Um, and uh, I would point somebody to historically, like the writings of Irenaeus, you know, to talk about the analogy or the rule of faith. In fact, um, if you, 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 let me give you just a, I mean, this is a great example of this. Irenaeus in his book Against Heresies, writing against the Valentinian Gnostics, in Book One, Chapter Ten, Section One. Okay, listen to this. This is a, this is like an, you, you tell this is like a really early version or, or form of, uh, of, a, of a creedal formula. But l- listen to this. Here's what uh, Irenaeus wrote all the way uh, towards the end of the, uh, the second century. It says, The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. Okay, She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God, and the advents, and the birth from a virgin, and the passion and the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension into heaven, into the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord, and his future manifestation from from heaven in the glory of the Father, to gather all things in one, to raise up anew all flesh of human uh, of the whole human race, in order that Christ Jesus, our Lord and God and Savior and King, according to the will of the invisible Father, every knee should bow of the, uh, of the things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and every tongue confess to him that he should execute just judgment toward all, that he may send spiritual wickedness and the angels who transgressed and became apostates together with the ungodly and the unrighteous and wicked, and profane among men into everlasting fire, but many in the exercise of his grace confer immortality on the righteous and the holy and those who have kept his commandments and have persevered in his love, some from the beginning of their Christian course and others from the date of their repentance, and may surround them with everlasting glory. I mean, that's an example, kind of like of the early version of the rule of faith, and you can hear in that, um, a lot of the elements that uh, got rolled up into the Nicene Creed, as well as you know the the the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, is actually a you know a kind of a Western a Latin Church thing. But uh, you get what I'm saying here is that these these things are not the enemies of Christianity. In fact, uh, throughout Church history, they have been very important in fighting off heretics and correctly defining what uh, what constitutes sound doctrine versus false doctrine. And the creeds were considered to be proper and good and correct summaries of what the Bible taught. So Carl Truman then continues. And also renders the person who claims that uh, phrase uh, unaccountable. If I don't know what the minister's creed is, if it's just the Bible, how on earth... Can I ever judge whether he's being biblically faithful or not? I need to know what he believes the Bible says in order to assess whether it's truly biblical or not. And the standard way of doing that in history has been for the church to have creeds and confessions. They're not supplemental to scripture in the sense of bringing more revelation from God. 
They are summaries of what scripture teaches to be normed, to be critiqued, to be revised in the light of what scripture teaches. Okay, the second question he's going to answer, by the way, is how has the anti-credal attitude entered today's churches? Here's uh, Carl Truman. One of the constant things that the church has to be aware of is worldliness. And ironically, the anti-credal attitude of the church can itself be a representation of precisely the worldliness of the church. There are forces within secular society that have nothing to do with Christianity and are indeed antithetical to Christianity that might lead us unwittingly to be anti-credal while we think we're being biblically faithful. Consumerism, for example, uh, science, the anti-historical emphasis in modern culture, all pointing us towards the future uh, rather than orienting us to the past as a source of knowledge. Uh, The cult of youth, the idea that the less one knows, the less cluttered with knowledge one is, the more authentic is one's belief, action, thinking. And that little piece right there, the the cult of youth, that's what's going on with these seeker-driven pastors. Remember yesterday's uh, miserable excuse for a sermon that we heard from Peter Haas on pharisectomy? I mean, this is a young guy who has no clue what the biblical text says, and, and yet he's held up as a successful church planter because he's got he's able to attract a large crowd but he doesn't properly teach god's word that's what he's referring to there these are all problematic Uh, paul clearly sees christianity as rooted in history he sees it as something that is not to be innovated but it's something to be passed on from generation to generation creeds and confessions are one mechanism for doing just that And I suspect that very often those who claim no creed but the Bible are unwittingly capitulating to the anti-historical, anti-authoritarian spirit of the age. Brilliant points by uh, Carl Truman. Now, talking about church history, um, Carl Truman seems to know his stuff. Even though he's reformed, he has written some pretty decent stuff regarding uh, uh, Martin Luther. And in fact, let me read to you uh, an article he wrote a few years ago, uh, years ago called Luther's Theology of the Cross. And uh, talk about an important look at church history. Here we go. Uh, Carl Truman writes, he says, No one could have expected that the Reformation would be launched by Martin Luther's 95 Theses Against Indulgences in October of 1517. The document itself simply proposed the framework for a university debate. Luther was arguing only for a revision of the practice of indulgences, not its abolition. He was certainly not offering an agenda for widespread theological and ecclesiastical reform. Indeed, he had already said much more controversial things in his disputation against scholastic theology of September 4th, 1517, in which he critiqued the whole way in which medieval mythology, medieval theology had been done for centuries. That disputation, however, passed without a murmur. And indeed, humanly speaking, it was only the unique combination of external factors, social, economic, and political, that made the latter disputation the spark that lit the Reformation fuse. Once the fuse had been lit, however, the church made a fatal error. She allowed the Augustinian order to which Luther belonged to deal with the problem as if it were a minor local difficulty. There was to be a meeting of the order in Heidelberg in in April of 1518, and Luther was asked to present a series of theses outlining his his theology so that he could be assessed by his brethren. 
it was here then that the relatively bland 95 Theses gave Luther an important opportunity to articulate the theology that he had expressed in his September Disputation. The Heidelberg Disputation is significant for two things. First, there was at least one other future Reformation giant present. This was Martin Bucer, the uh, reformer of Strasbourg, who uh, would end his days as professor of divinity at Cambridge, a man of vast intellect and wide ecumenical vision. Bucer uh, was to have a profound influence on a generation of reformers, not the least John Calvin, and his first taste of Reformation thinking was provided by Luther at Heidelberg in uh, 1517. Yet, while Bucer left the disputation marveling at how Luther had attacked what the church had become, he missed the theological core of what Luther was saying. This is the second point of importance, the theology of the cross. So toward the end of the disputation, Luther offered some theses, which seem, in typical Luther fashion, nonsensical or at least obscure. Theses 19, 20, 21, and 22. Let me read them in order. Theses 19. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. See Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Theses number 20. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. 21. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. 22. That wisdom which sees the invisible things of God in works as perceived by man is completely puffed up, blinded, and hardened. These statements actually encapsulate the heart of Luther's theology and a good grasp of what he means by the obscure terms and phrases they contain sheds light not just on the doctrinal content of his theology, but also on the very way that he believed theologians should think. Indeed, he is taking Paul's explosive argument from 1 Corinthians and developing developing it into a full theological agenda. At the heart of his argument is his notion that human beings should not speculate about who God is or how he acts in advance of actually seeing whom he has revealed himself to be. Thus, Luther sees revelation of himself as axiomatic to all theology. Now, there probably is not a heretic in history who would not agree with that because all theology presupposes the revelation of God, whether in nature, human reason, culture, or whatever. Luther, however, had a dramatically restrictive view of revelation. God revealed himself as merciful to humanity in the incarnation when he manifested himself in human flesh and the supreme moment of that revelation was on the cross at Calvary. Indeed, Luther sometimes referred enigmatically to Christ crucified as God's backside, the point at which God appeared to be the very contradiction of all that one might reasonably have anticipated him to be. The theologians of glory, therefore, are those who build their theology in the light of what they expect God to be like, and, surprise, surprise, they make God to look something like themselves. The theologians of the cross, however, are those who build their theology in the light of God's own revelation of himself in Christ hanging on the cross. The implications of this position are revolutionary. 
For a start, Luther is demanding that the entire theological vocabulary be revised in light of the cross. Take, for example, the word power. When theologians of glory read about divine power in the Bible or use the term in their own theology, they assume that it is analogous to human power. They suppose that they can arrive at an understanding of divine power by magnifying to an infinite degree the most powerful thing of which they can think. In light of the cross, however, this understanding of divine power is the very opposite of what divine power is all about. Divine power is revealed in the weakness of the cross, for it is in his apparent defeat at the hands of the evil powers and corrupt earthly authorities that Jesus shows his divine power in the conquest of death and of all the powers of evil. So when a Christian talks about divine power, or even about church or Christian power, it is to be conceived of in terms of the cross, power hidden in the form of weakness. For Luther, the same procedure must be applied to other theological terms. For example, God's wisdom is demonstrated in the foolishness of the cross. Who would have thought up, in the, thought up the foolish idea of God taking human flesh in order to die a horrendous death on behalf of sinners who had deliberately defied him, or God making sinners pure by himself becoming sin for them, or God himself raising up a people to newness of life by himself submitting to death? We could go on looking at such terms as life, blessing, holiness, and righteousness. Every single one must be reconceived in light of the cross. All are important theological concepts. All are susceptible to human beings, casting them in their own image, and all must be recast in the light of the cross. This insight is one of the factors in Luther's thinking that gives his theology an inner logic and coherence. Take, for example, his understanding of justification, whereby God declares the believer to be righteous in his sight, not by virtue of any intrinsic righteousness, anything that the believer has done or acquired, but on the basis of an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ that remains external to the believer." Is this not typical of the strange but wonderful logic of the God on the cross? The person who is really unrighteous, really mired in sin, is actually declared by God to be pure and righteous. Such a truth is incomprehensible to human logic, but makes perfect sense in light of the logic of the cross. And what uh, and what of the idea of a God who comes down and loves the unlovely and the unrighteous before the objects of his love have any inclination to love him or to do good. Such is incomprehensible to the theologians of glory who assume that God is like them, like other human beings, and thus only responds to those who are intrinsically attractive or good or who first earn his favor in some way. But the cross shows that God is not like that. Against every assumption that human beings might make about who God is and how he acts, he requires no prior loveliness in the objects of his love. Rather, his prior love creates that loveliness without laying down preconditions. Such a God is revealed with amazing and unexpected tenderness and beauty in the ugly and violent drama of the cross." 
Luther does not restrict the theology of the cross to an objective revelation of God. He also sees it as the key to understanding Christian ethics and experience. Foundational to both is the role of faith. To the eyes of unbelief, the cross is nonsense. It is what it seems to be, the crushing, filthy death of a man cursed by God. That is how the unbelieving mind interprets the cross. Foolishness to the Greeks and an offense to Jews, depending on whether your chosen sin is intellectual arrogance or moral self-righteousness. To the eyes opened by faith, however, the cross is seen as it really is. God is revealed in the hiddenness of the external form, and faith is understood to be a gift of God, not a power inherent in the human mind itself. This principle of faith then allows the believer to understand how he or she is to behave. United to Christ, the great king and priest, the believer too is both a king and a priest. But these offices are not excuses for lording it over others. In fact, kingship and priesthood are to be enacted in the believer as they are in Christ, through suffering and self-sacrifice in the service of others. The believer is king of everything by being a servant of everyone. The believer is completely free by being subject to all. As Christ demonstrated his kingship and power by death on the cross, so the believer does not by giving himself or herself unconditionally to the aid of others. We are to be, as Luther puts it, little Christs to our neighbors, for in so doing we find our true identity as children of God. This argument is explosive giving a whole new understanding of Christian authority. Elders, for example, are not to be those renowned for throwing their weight around, for badgering others, and for using their position or wealth or credentials to enforce their own opinions. No, the truly Christian elder is the one who devotes his whole life to the painful, inconvenient, humiliating service of others. For in so doing, he demonstrates Christ-like authority, the kind of authority that Christ himself demonstrated through his incarnate life and supremely on the cross at Calvary. The implications of the theology of the cross for the believer do not stop there. The cross is paradigmatic for how God will deal with believers who are united to Christ by faith. In short, great blessing will come through great suffering. This point is hard for those of us in the affluent West to swallow. For example, some years ago, I lectured at a church gathering on this topic and pointed out that the cross was not simply an, an atonement but a revelation of how God deals with those whom he loves. I was challenged afterwards by an individual who said that Luther's theology of the cross did not give enough weight to the fact that the cross and the resurrection marked the start of the reversal of the curse and that great blessings should thus be expected. To focus on suffering and weakness was therefore to miss the eschatological significance of Christ's ministry. Of course, this individual had failed to apply Luther's theology of the cross as thoroughly as he should have done. All that he said was true, but he failed to understand that what he was saying in light of the cross. Yes, Luther would agree the curse is being rolled back, but the rollback is demonstrated by the fact, thanks to the cross, evil is now utterly subverted in the cause of good. If the cross of Christ, the most evil act in human history, can be in line with God's will and be the source of the decisive defeat of the very evil that caused it, then any other evil can also be subverted to the cause of good. More than that, if the death of Christ's 
Christ is mysteriously a blessing, then any evil that the believer experiences can be a blessing too. Yes, the curse is reversed. Yes, blessings will flow. But who declared that these blessings have to be in accordance with the aspirations and and expectations of affluent America? The lesson of the cross for Luther is that the most blessed person upon the earth, Jesus Christ himself, was revealed as blessed precisely in his suffering and death. And if that is the way that God deals with his beloved son, have those who are united to him by faith any right to expect anything different? This casts the problem of evil in a somewhat different light for Luther than, say, for Harold Kushner, the rabbi who wrote, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. They happen, Luther would say, because that is how God blesses them. God accomplishes his work in the believer by doing his alien work, the opposite of what we expect. He really blesses by apparently cursing. Indeed, When it is grasped that the death of Christ, the greatest crime in history, was itself willed in a deep and mysterious way by the triune God, yet without involving God in any kind of moral guilt, we see the solution to the age-old problem of absolving an all-powerful God of responsibility for evil. The answer to the problem of evil does not lie in trying to establish its points of origin, for that is simply not revealed to us. Rather, in the moment of the cross, it becomes clear that evil is utterly subverted for good. Romans 8.28 is true because of the cross of Christ. If God can take the greatest of evils and turn it to the greatest of goods, then how much more can he take the lesser evils which litter human history from individual tragedies to international disasters and turn them to his good purpose as well? Luther's theology of the cross is too rich to be covered adequately in a single article. But I hope that my brief sketch above will indicate the rich vein of theological reflection which can be mined by those who reflect upon 1 Corinthians 1 and upon the dramatic antithesis between appearance and reality that are scattered throughout Scripture and marshaled with such force by Martin Luther. An antidote to sentimentality, prosperity doctrine, and an excessively worldly eschatology, this is theological gold dust. The cross is not simply the point at which God atones for sin. It is also a profound revelation of who God is and how he acts towards his creation. <laughs> just brilliant. Just, just a great, great article worth passing along. All right, we are up on our second break. Would love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button. I've maxed out my, my friends. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back with a really bad sermon review. I can hardly wait. Stay tuned. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. 
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. We're going to be going back to Corona. Corona, California, that is. Man, that Carl Truman article was just brilliant. So good. All right, let's let's do this right. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. <clears throat> Today's masloration, uh, <laughs> from the combination of two words, Maslow, as, as in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and oration stuck together. Today's masloration comes to us via South Hills Church um, in Corona, California. And uh, it's... Chris Songson presiding. Uh, we've been reviewing sermons from Chris Songson probably as long as I've been doing Fighting for the Faith. And I think we have yet to have him correctly handle any biblical text. Today, well, it, he's going to stay true to form. He's going to rip some verses out of context in order to help you come up with strategies on how to effectively manage conflict in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, and things like that. So, uh, without any further ado, here's his masloration entitled Happily Never After, Part 4. Uh, yeah, from the Happily Never After um, masloration series at South Hills in Corona, California. Here we go. Here's Chris Songson. As we head into Part 4 of Family Month, we still have one more part to go. And I want to, two things, I want to welcome all those who are watching at our online campus. Would you give our online viewers a big hand? Come on. Welcome them to the room. Second thing is, I want to let you know that we are launching, when this series is over, we're launching a brand new series called How to Hug a Vampire. And uh, we all joke around about vampires. They suck the blood out of you. But how about those people in your life that suck the life out of you? 
You know what I'm talking about? So we're taking family month and we're going to broaden it for the next series. And we're going to talk about all of our relationships, husband, wife, kids, friends, coworkers, in-laws, all of them and how they suck the life out of us and how to have the right healthy relationship. Well, we're just kind of extending family month into a new series called how to hug a vampire. And it kind of goes perfectly because twilight's coming out and my daughter's all excited. But, um, but this will be great. So just keep that in mind. When this series is over, we go right into another one all about relationships. We're still going to be talking about sex and affection next week. But today, we're talking about conflict and how do we reduce the conflict? Where does it come from? And how do we make sure that your conflict doesn't look like what we just saw on the screen? Now, if you got some notes, get ready to take the notes. Hopefully, you got a Bible. I want to welcome you to South Hills if you're a guest. Thanks for being here. You have come to a great church and you are home. Does everybody else agree with me? Come on. Welcome home. And so we love having you today. My wife and I last Saturday night, not yesterday, but last Saturday night, we go uh, uh, after the service was over last Saturday night and, and uh, we have a Saturday night service at five o'clock identical to this one if you ever can't make it on Sunday. But we, uh, we, we go to the movies last Saturday night. And, uh, and we go to the movies after the service. We went home. I'm like, Hey man, I'm still kind of like, you know, wired after the service. And I'm not really that hungry. I had a late lunch. Let's, uh, let's go to the movies. So we decided to go to the movies. We go to the crossing at Dos Lagos. We go inside of the movie and, uh, uh, we paid, I don't know, probably two, 250 to get in. <laughs> the popcorn made it a cool 500. But anyway, so we went in and there was a big, you know, the line and we got, and my wife says, uh, oh, I got to have popcorn. That, whatever it is for my wife, she has to have popcorn and snacks and all this sort of crud at every single movie. And, uh, uh, and so we walk in and, uh, you know, we're standing in line and I'm like, ah, you know, and I'm frugal. I'm like, that's a lot of money for a popcorn, you know? So I'm standing there and, and, uh, we finally get to the front and she goes, I'll take a number five, which is a medium popcorn and a medium drink. And I, she goes, okay, let's share the drink. I said, yes, we will be sharing the drink. Because it's thirty-five fifty, but um, she says, "Let's share the drink." I said, "Okay," and she says, uh, "I go, we'll just I go, okay, make it iced tea because I don't drink soda." Okay, we'll take an iced tea. She goes, "Oh, I'm sorry, our iced tea's all out," and and, and we're like, "Oh, great." My wife goes, "Ah, forget it. Just put tap water in there." At the end of it, the lady wants to charge us six dollars for tap water. Six dollars for tap water. So the argument starts. My wife says, "Well, how about just bottled water?" She goes, "Well, that'll be five, but you'll get more tap water for six. Six bucks for tap water. So I'm all upset. Now keep in mind, I've already said, keep in mind, I, got, I forgot to lay this out. There's already people I said hello to like four lines down that go to our church. Hey, Pastor Chris. Oh, hey, praise God. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, yeah, church was good tonight. People are coming to Christ. Oh, hallelujah. So now the, the $11, you know, $12, whatever it is, little popcorn and tap water starts going. My wife goes, well, forget that. And so my wife's going on and on. Finally, this guy behind her. And you can ask my wife, she's sitting in the front, about the size of Pastor Dennis. You know, just kind of big, kind of Shrek looking. And, um, and he's just kind of big, you know, and, and like this. And he's standing behind us and he says to my wife, he goes, he says to my wife, he says, he says, uh, hey, he goes, could you hurry up? My movie's already started. And he said it kind of rude. My wife doesn't even miss a beat. She turns around and she looks at him and she goes, well, then you should have got here earlier. I was like, I grab some of the popcorn. I forget the show. This is going to be awesome. He snaps back with another comment. She snaps back with another one. And I'm like, what in the world's going on? And my wife to this day is going, I'm standing my ground. Well, let me tell you how she stands her ground. So she heats it up with Mr. Linebacker boy. And, um, 
And he's getting, and finally I got to step in because he's really getting smart out with my wife. I go, hey, look, dude. I go, you're snapping at my wife. I go, I don't appreciate that. Then he pops off with, this is one. She, he pops off with, he's like 40 years old. He goes, she started it. She started it. I'm like, and I'm like, well, I go, look, dude, I go, I wouldn't be talking to your wife. And so we started and he started getting in my face a little bit. And I'm thinking my wife started this whole thing. And I'm looking over her. I'm thinking, does she have my back? Does she got the pepper spray? Are we doing okay? And oh no, she's 30 feet over there putting on butter. I'll see you in the movie. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, this is not going to be good. I can see the headline, you know, pastor beats up man. Or even worse, man beats up pastor. I didn't want to, I don't want to read that. But anyway, so conflict now, however, is inevitable. There isn't a doubt in my mind that in your marriage and in your relationships, you're going to have conflict. It's inevitable. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. You are going to have conflict with your wife. You're going to have conflict with your husband. You're going to have conflict with your friends. And for those of you that someday will be married, because maybe you want to be married, you're going to have conflict. The issue isn't whether you're going to have conflict. The issue is how are you going to handle that conflict when it comes that way. Now, there are four major ways that we tend to handle conflict. Now, when I give you these definitions, I I want you to decide which one best describes you. Okay, you got that? You're going to look at four different ways to respond to conflict, and you're going to decide which one. And we're going to ask the question, which one of these are taught in the Bible? See if any of them are. Best describes you. Here we go. Let's go with the first one. Put it up on the screen for me. Are you the turtle when it comes to conflict? Wants to hide in the shell and will avoid conflict? Hmm, I don't recall a story about turtles hiding from conflict in the Bible. Yeah. Conflict at any cost. Don't raise your hand. Just decide. Is that really me? Which one best describes you? Okay. Are you that person? You avoid conflict at any cost. You're kind of like a turtle. Okay. Next one. Or are you the teddy bear? Doesn't like conflict. Wants everybody to be happy and peaceful. Just wants everybody to get along. Don't really deal with the real issues. Just as long. No teddy bears mentioned in the Bible either. Weird. As everybody's happy. Kind of like Marie Barone from Everybody Loves Raymond. Just as long as everybody's happy. All right, here we go to the next one. A fox. Are you a fox? Uses their persuasive ability to communicate to get their way. More concerned about winning than resolving. In other words, when you get an argument, you're really good with your words. And you're going to win because you're so good with your ability to communicate. Or are you a shark? When conflict arises, they are quick to attack and draw blood. They don't just want to win. They want to destroy. Yeah. When they get into an argument. Now, go to the next. So we got sharks out there and turtles and teddy bears. And yeah, I, I, the thing that's weird about this particular thing, since it's not biblical, I feel like he's discriminating against people who might be duck-billed platypuses. Um, you know, if, if you're a cheetah, you know, um, you know, you're being left out of the mix here. Um, you know, if you're an elephant, I mean, see, you know, or, or a hippopotamus, you know, or a lion, you know, all of these, all of these critters that God has created are being omitted here in this <clears throat> evaluation tool that's not found in the Bible, by the way. Next slide. Okay, let's see. Okay, how many here would you say, okay, maybe it doesn't perfectly describe you, but which one best describes you? Is the best one to describe you a turtle? Let me see. Where are the turtles at? You got to get your hand up. You're not even getting it out of the shell. Come on, get it up there. You're like, right here. Okay, high in there, high in there. Turtles. You just want to avoid conflict at any cost. There's quite a few of you. All right. 
How many here are teddy bears? You just want air? Look at all these teddy bears in here. What a peaceful church. All right. How many are foxes? You communicate will and you use your words to argue. Wow, you guys are a mess. All right. All right, here's the big one. How many are sharks? Man, you come out and you are swinging with your verbal assault. Yeah, she got both hands going like this. And she's elbowing her husband like, eh, eh, eh. Do the hustle. Eh. Now, we all have these things in our life. Okay? These are ways that we respond. All these ways are ways that we respond to conflict. We all have different ways that we respond to conflict. And these are just some of the ways that we respond. Now, where does our conflict in our relationship come from? It comes from two major areas. Number one, let's put it up on the screen for me. Where does our conflict come from? Number one, it is unmet expectations. Say it out loud with me. What is it? Unmet expectations. That's where our, it comes from. Now, you've got to understand something. Frustration. Okay, question. Uh, where in the Bible does it talk about the fact that conflict comes from unmet expectations? I thought the Bible teaches that that kind of stuff comes from, well, our sinful nature. But, you know, maybe my problem is I'm so old school I haven't updated to the new Christianity 2.0 or, you know. Christian is always a result of unmet expectation. Did you catch that? You might want to write that down. We're a note-taking church. Frustration is always a result of unmet expectation. Now, we all admit some of you are sharks, some of you are turtles, some of you are foxes, and some of you are teddy bears. But the source of conflict, regardless of how what your style is to handle that conflict, the source of conflict is always the same. It's unmet expectations. Now, here's the... This is just pop psychology. This isn't Christianity. The deal. Some of us in here in this room, we have unmet expectations. Here's what unmet expectations look like. Okay, let me just give you a little example. Um, some of you have a way that you want the house to be kept. Some of you have an idea of the way money should be spent in your house. You have an expectation. Some of you have an expectation of how often you should be having sex. So, <laughs> mainly from the male population. Yes, and yes, I do. We're a few hours overdue, aren't we, honey? There are so many options for me right now with comments, but I'll just move on. All these things going in my head. Now, some of us have expectations on how we should raise kids. Some of us have expectation on all sorts of things. You know, whenever I... Uh, uh, Whenever I uh, do premarital counseling, which isn't often on the premarital side, I always ask this question, and it blows everybody away. I always ask this question in premarital counseling. So have you guys set out your expectations? And they always look at me like, what do you mean? Well, I'm just wondering, how are you going to spend money? How are you going to raise the kids? How often are you going to have sex? How do you want the house to be cleaned? You better talk about it now. You better realize your expectation now, because here's the deal. You cannot expect if you have not expressed I want to write that down. You cannot expect what you have not expressed. Yeah, chapter and verse from the Bible for that, please. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. You're, going, you're only going to use the Bible out of context in order to create the impression that you're actually preaching um, biblical sanctification here when you're not.
I'm expecting something. Really? Is it clear? And was it clear in the beginning that this is what you were expecting? Because if your expectation isn't being met, frustration will set in. There comes the conflict. And it's all because you've, you haven't expected. Yeah, you know, this makes sense now. It's like dawning on me. The reason I'm so frustrated with um, guys like Chris Songson and the seek- whole seeker-driven leaders is because I have this expectation of pastors that they're supposed to preach the word and supposed to preach Christ. What's weird, though, is you know where I got that expectation from? God's word. Isn't that weird? Huh. So these guys aren't living up to my expectations, but my expectations were set because they were communicated clearly by God and his word. Strange, isn't it? Yeah, just... Express your expectation. You cannot expect what you have not expressed. Second thing is this. It's underlying issues. Let's look at it. Underlying issues. Put it on the screen for me, please. There we go. Underlying issues. Say it out loud with me. What is it? Okay, now, unmet expectations and underlying issues. Now, what does it mean by underlying issues? Underlying issues are this, okay? We have unmet expectations, and that's what creates our conflict. But then we have underlying issues. What underlying issues are? Underlying issues look something like this. You're a person that has a lot of fear. So whenever a small potential of a conflict rises up, it ends up being big. You have an underlying issue of insecurity. So whenever a small issue rises up, it ends up being a forest fire. You have an underlying issue with jealousy. So anytime small something rises up, it ends up being a big old deal because there's always this underlying issue. You have a difficulty in trusting people. So whenever it rises up, some little conflict, it becomes a big deal because there's this underlying issue. There's some. Yeah, my question is, um, is he qualified to be giving psychological group therapy? Just, I mean, because last time I checked his dossier, I mean, Chris Songson, before he was a, a pastor, was a motivational speaker. In fact, he still does motivational speaking on the side to, you know, supplement his income. So, I mean, my question is, is you know, is he actually qualified to be doing group therapy right now? You know, just, you know, th- th- these are good questions to be asking, if you ask me. Something underneath and something, a spark becomes a huge forest fire in your relationships, not because the spark was big, but because the underlying issue was ready to set it aflame. It was, it's already there. You know, we, uh, we have an incredible program here at South Hills called LSSC, Leadership School of Southern California. Yeah. And uh, it is an internship program, and kids come from all over the United States to intern here. And we have people that have been gracious, some of you in this room, to open up your home for about nine months to host these kids. My wife and I uh, opened up our home to one girl named Desiree, and uh, she has become a, 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 taken over one of the rooms there. And she comes into our house, and she announces that she's gluten-free. Which, I have a conspiracy about gluten-free, because five years ago, we never even heard of gluten-free, and now all of a sudden, it's all hip. Like, are you vegetarian? No, I'm gluten-free. Whatever. But anyway, um, five years ago, it didn't even exist, but now all of a sudden, it's like a word, you know? Isn't that a trip? You know, five years ago, you didn't even heard of the term. But anyway, that's a whole different issue. So, we get Desiree living in our house, then something happens, and we end up taking this other uh, intern. Now we have two of them in our house. And now my wife, because she's such a phenomenal host, and she thinks it's some sort of dorm at our house. Uh, I'm serious. It's not a house anymore. She's up till midnight chewing the fat with him and talking and <laughs> giggling and toilet paper in our own inside of our own house. I got to clean it up. It's like a dorm, I'm telling you. And so everything, not everything, but there's this whole shelf of gluten-free stuff. Gluten-free pancakes, gluten-free muffins. Two nights ago, they made a gluten-free cake. You ever eaten a gluten-free cake? 
It's like cardboard with frosting on top. Everything. Now, here's the deal with gluten free. And I know I was kidding around with it and I was joking around with those girls. Are you sure you're gluten free? And if you're gluten free, I'm not putting it down or anything like that. I was just having fun with these girls. But understand something. The reason that they respond to eating wheat, which activates this issue in their life, is because there's already an underlying issue that is activated by something small as wheat. When you have insecurity, fear, difficulty trusting people, or whatever the underlying issue is, some little teeny potential conflict comes in, and it blows up because there's underlying issues. Mm, yeah, wow. This, this is... <laughs> I'm so glad that, you know, I have my Bible to help me understand all this stuff because, you know, here we are, you know, a quarter, more than a quarter, like we're a third of the way through this thing. And yeah, there, there no Bible yet. Don't worry. He won't overburden us with all that dogma and stuff. And, and, and by, he's just going to throw a couple of Bible nuggets into this uh, self-help pep talk masloration in order to create the uh, false impression that this is actually biblical teaching, none of this is. I just, I mean, seriously, I mean, Tony Robbins could preach this. It's in all of us. Now, the deal is this. It's very hard for unhealthy people to produce healthy relationships. It's very hard to do. Unhealthy people, if you've got some issues in your life, you're going to find it very difficult to have the God-filled exponential relationship define an issue i mean i thought the bible addressed sin and its consequences and what's an issue i mean you know i'm i'm not even sure how to define that is this that a polite way of saying you're really screwed up i mean what what is an issue tips that god wants you to have because i said it for the last three weeks hear me out on this hear me hear me hear me god desires for you to have a rocking marriage God for you desires for you to have incredible relationships with your family. God desires for you to have incredible communication. And God desires for you to attend a church where the pastor actually preaches the Bible and proclaims Christ. Yeah, that's God's will for you. That's clearly spelled out in Scripture. So it's not God's will for you to attend South Hills in Corona. Incredible intimacy, incredible sex. Where's my, yeah, there you are. Um, God desires all of that, but you're never going to get to that because it's hard to have this healthy relationships with each other and family when there's an unhealthy person bringing underlying issues. Now, God... Yeah, unhealthy person with issues. Put them out with the lepers. I mean, you send them out to the leper colony. You may not want them mixing with your community. I I don't even know what that is. It just sounds, you know, not good. Yeah. Hey, we got an unhealthy person over here with some issues. Ooh, yeah, call the authorities and see if they can clean up that mess in aisle three. Warns against it. Jesus warns against it quite a bit. In Mark chapter uh, 3, verse 25, you might want to write this down. It'll come up. Now watch what he does here. I'm going to back up the audio just a smidge so you can hear this in context. If you have your Bible, go ahead and flip on over to the Gospel of Mark chapter 3. Watch what he does with this verse. I mean, this is a crime. I mean, and the thing is, I'm not going to let him get away with it, but your jaw might potentially hit the ground when you see what he's doing with this text. I mean, you have got to be somebody with no conscience to literally, with a straight face, twist this Bible passage the way he's about to twist it and to try to make it say what he's about to make it say. So again, Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, Bible open, 
I'm backing up the audio. Here we go. God desires all of that, but you're never going to get to that because it's hard to have this healthy relationships with each other and family when there's an unhealthy person bringing underlying issues. Now, God warns against it. Jesus warns against it quite a bit. In Mark chapter uh, 3, verse 25, you might want to write this down. It'll come up on the screen. Mark 3, 25, a, a family splintered uh, by feuding will fall apart. Say that out loud with me. What did Jesus say 2,000 years ago about families? A family, come on, splintered by will what? Okay, these are the words of Jesus 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, he said those words in Jerusalem. And he said, if you guys in 2012 cannot stop this bickering and arguing and deal with the underlying issues and deal with those unmet expectations, if you can't learn to be solid and be one unit, he says, eventually, you're going to slowly start falling apart. Okay, so here's the question. Anyone want to bet with me here? <laughs> it's an unfair wager. Um, it's an unfair wager. I, there's a story of <laughs> of uh, somebody we knew in New York. who uh, the, the, My grandpa tells this story. He's been dead for a while, though. But uh, tells a story about, uh, you know, these kids in Brooklyn who, you know, during, like, you know, the World Series and the playoff season in baseball, there used to be these, like, electronic, not even electronic, but, like, baseball scoreboards that were placed in you know above bars and different establishments and people would literally gather on the streets of Brooklyn and other places and you know, kids were paid to you know listen to a rate you know to listen to a radio and then update what was happening you know who batted who got struck out and what's going on and so if you know if you if you subscribe to MLB on your iPhone or whatever you know they have they, that's game day okay they had a, a an analog version of it back in the day and uh, my grandpa used to tell a story about a kid who would make a killing and and the way he would make a killing was is that there would be people saying i bet you that you know dimaggio will you know well, you know, get, you know he's going to hit a single and he's going to score in a run. And the kids say, "I'll take your bet." So they, you know, they bet a dollar or five dollars or you know a quarter or nickel or whatever. And uh, and the kid would always win the bets. And the reason why is because there was always a delay. He had the information, but he wouldn't act on it for five minutes. And so he, the information he was putting up on the board, there was a five minute delay. As a result of it, he was able to make all these wages with people in the odd. Anyway, so <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is this, and that's um. Anyone want to wager with me that this Mark chapter 3 verse 25 has absolutely nothing to do with families? Anyone want to wager with me? Now, I'm cheating. I'm looking at my Bible. I know what this passage says. But if you want to take the wager, you know, go ahead and bet with me now. And if you lose the bet, I expect, you know, you you pick the amount. I expect you to go ahead and, you know, put that into the fighting for the faith you know, um, our, our, our coffers, you know, you know, click on the yellow button and make a donation with the amount of money that you're going to lose. So, you know, let's make the bet right now. I have no idea how much you're betting me. Okay. It's like, all right, there you go. We're shaking on it. Okay. So you, yeah, it's, I don't know if it's a dollar five or 10 or whatever, but Mark chapter three, verse 25, does it have, is, is this Jesus really telling us, you know, that, you know, telling families, you need to stop bickering and having conflict. Otherwise your home's going to fall apart. Ready? Verse 22, we're going to apply our three rules of sound biblical exegesis. Uh, verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And so he called them to them and said to them in parables, 
How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Yeah, this is not Jesus giving us advice 2,000 years ago on stop bickering within your house. Otherwise, you know, your your home is not going to do well. You know, that's not what this text is saying at all. This is about the Pharisees accusing Jesus of being able to perform miracles by being the prince of demons, Beelzebub. And Jesus asked the question, how can Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't make any sense. That would be like Nazis casting out Nazis. That would be like, you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't make any sense. So let me back the audio up again just a smidge because I want you to hear what he literally has the audacity to do with this text. Now, those of you who lost the bet... Yeah, I'm sorry that you were foolish enough to wager against me. That passage isn't about families or conflicts. <laughs> um, you know, go ahead and you know, go to the fightingforthefaith.com, click on the donate button there, and and uh, send in your um, your losing bet money. Just you know, I'm sorry that you were foolish enough to wager against me. But here's Chris Songson again. Listen to what he does to this text. Five. You might want to write this down. It'll come up on the screen. Mark 3.25, a, a family splintered uh, by feuding will fall apart. Say that out loud with me. What did Jesus say 2,000 years ago about families? A family, come on, splintered by will what? Okay, these are the words of Jesus 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, he said those words in Jerusalem. And he said, if you guys in 2012 cannot stop this bickering and arguing and deal with the underlying issues and deal with those unmet expectations, if you can't look... Yeah, so Jesus was here in this verse saying, if you can't deal with the underlying issues and unmet expectations, well then... Learn to be solid and be one unit. He says, eventually, you're going to slowly start falling apart. And yet, Jesus didn't say anything of the sort. Makes you wonder what kind of monkey business he's up to, huh? It doesn't happen overnight, though. A little warning, it never happens overnight. Some people come into my office. I had a friend come into my office. I've known this guy for years and years and years. His marriage has been a mess for years and years. And he came in and he sat down and he said, hey, Chris. He goes, today my marriage fell apart. Now, I'm honest with him because I've known him for years. And I said, friend, I go, your marriage didn't fall apart today. It's been falling apart for 10 years. It just showed up today. That's what happens when we don't deal with those splintering things that Jesus talked about and warned us against. When I, when I became a Christian, I was about 15 years old, and I started going to a youth group. I got invited to a youth group. I went to the youth group, became a Christian, and the, and the youth pastor gave me a Bible. And he said, just start reading a page a day and start reading some. And I didn't know where to start. He didn't tell me to start in the book of John. I ended up in the book of Song of Solomon. I was 15 years old. Anybody ever read the Song of Solomon? It is this incredible description. You have to read the Song of Solomon. It's only about 117 verses or something like that. Eight chapters. And uh, it's about this Solomon guy and this girl of his and their journey from courtship to consummation. And it's very detailed. I mean, ridiculously detailed things like your neck is like a tower that it tastes like honey and my mouth longs for it. It's all poetic. 
And it's all like, you know, you know, like that. And I'm reading it. This is like day three of being a Christian. I'm hiding it under my bed. I'm thinking, my parents are going to find this. It's like, I'm getting a lot of trouble for this book. They're going to put me on restriction reading this kind of stuff. I mean, you got to read Song of Solomon. I, some of you, yeah, I mean, it's in, and it's all about, yeah, yeah, but very poetic. I had my right wife read it for a month leading into our honeymoon just to kind of lay the groundwork. But um, the Song of Solomon is very detailed. Now, it's about this guy, and it's about his courtship and his consummation, and it's very detailed, and it was written in 900 B.C., and it's about the relationship, and it's very graphic, and it's, it's, it is. But then... Then, right in the middle of the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, there is this portal scripture that sort of takes over for a moment. And one scripture, it's like all about courtship and, oh, your lovely neck and your mouth is beautiful and your lips taste like honey on a winter, you know, whatever. And it's just like all poetic. And then, bam, right in the middle, they stop for one verse and they talk about relationships that I think you and I can radically learn from. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. Go ahead and put it on the screen for me. It reads like this. So your, your, your marriage is about to be rocked. I mean, radically changed as a result of this verse. So that's the setup for this single, solitary, out-of-context verse from Song of Solomon. This. Why don't you read it out loud with me, everybody? Catch all the what? Though everybody together, let's just read it together. Those little foxes before they ruin the vineyard of love, for the grapevines are blossoming. Now, understand. For that scripture, he's not talking about intimacy or anything like that. What he's talking about is this. He's saying, look, in those days, they had vineyards and gardens and all that. And it's a metaphor. And they would say, you know what? Foxes come in and they rip apart our vineyard and they steal our food. Now, when you're a farmer and the only thing you're relying on is the crops you're growing, you can't have them stolen by some little fox or a gopher or something else that comes in and steals it. Okay, I, I hate to break it to him, but... Song of Solomon is a type and shadow that points us to Christ and his bride, the church. I know it's, I don't have time to explain it here. Um, but I mean, I mean, don't you, isn't your, aren't all your relationships just being radically transformed by this phrase, catch the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are all in blossom. Ah, man, I could just feel all the conflict in my relationships being managed now. I mean, I, this was the missing key, uh, the missing link that, that I needed to plug into my mind in order to just get rid of all of the conflict in my relationships. Excuse me while I beat my head against something. And so what he's saying in the scripture is he's saying, look, he goes, just like a gardener has to be careful not to let these little animals in to come tear up the garden. He warns this about our families. He says, hey, families, you better be careful about the little foxes and the little things that are going to come inside of your relationship and tear it up. Because, yeah, let me read. <laughs> okay, yeah, again, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. For our vineyards are in blossom. By the way, something that would help you in reading something like Song of Solomon would be a good study Bible. Now, I know that a lot of you who are listening to Fighting for the Faith, in fact, the vast majority, are not Lutherans. I'm a confessional Lutheran. That being said, uh, please don't think this is a biased opinion. I have, you know, in my library multiple different 
study Bibles, okay? Um, and still, the one that I think is the absolute best, the one uh, that, I, that I go to regularly, okay, is the Lutheran Study Bible. If you do not have a copy of the Lutheran Study Bible, strongly recommend that you get it, even if you're not a Lutheran, because the the notes and the commentary in the Lutheran Study Bible are just just great. I mean, it, they show you Christ from the Old Testament passages. I mean, it's it, yeah, it it helps resolve types and shadows. I mean, it's just it's brilliant. There's great quotes from people throughout all of church history and how they've handled the biblical texts. And I found it funny when I you know quickly looked at, at the Lutheran Study Bible's note regarding Song of Solomon chapter two verse fifteen, kind of going back to the point that I just made, and that is Song of Solomon is in fact. Um, a type and shadow that points to the reality of Christ and his bride, the church. Believe it, you know, by the way, the kind of a, you know, kind of a fun little way of putting it is, you know, you know, all the, the hoo-ha that went on in the media regarding the um, so-called is Jesus married uh, papyri that was found, you know, the, the Jesus marriage papyri. Well, the reality is this, the scripture makes it clear that Jesus is married. He's married to his bride. Who's his bride? The church. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, you, you you do something like that, you just pull the carpet out from those folks. But anyway, um, so, yeah, Jesus is married. He's married to the church. But um, anyway, let me read to you from the Lutheran Study Bible the note here that it says, here's what it says regarding the foxes. The real threat to vineyards by their devouring of fruit and digging. Vineyards usually had walls to keep out animals. Little things often eat away at and erode love in a marriage. So, okay, d- decent point. But St. Paul warns that even a little leaven can threaten the whole lump. See First First uh, Corinthians 5, 6. Thus, Luther warns, false brethren in the church and also heresies which worm their way in and slowly wreak havoc on God's vineyard. So um, Luther, <laughs> you know, they use a Luther quote here to kind of point us to the bigger picture here. Um, the little foxes that we we should worry about in the vineyard, well, the vineyard being, you know, Christ's vineyard would be heretics. Yeah, I just found that fascinatingly great. Um, moving along with this bad sermon. You have a vineyard called love. We just saw it in the scripture, a vineyard called love, and it wants to blossom, but it's going to be torn apart by all these other things in our life. Now, that's a massive warning. And we have those foxes in our life. We have those area of conflicts. We have those underlying issues that if we don't resolve them, if we don't learn to handle conflict, he said, it's going to be like a fox that comes into your garden or into your vineyard, into your family, and it's going to tear it up. So let's learn from this. Let me give you three things I want you to write down real quick. Ready? Write down this. Okay. Three things that I think we can learn from that one little scripture. Number one, write it down. Build fences. Build fences. Now, what does that mean to build fences? People, now listen to me, people that were back in those days and even now, if you had a vineyard or a garden, let's imagine that this, this platform, the small platform on, on that, that, it's a, that it's a garden or your family. Okay, it's a metaphor. The garden is your family. They would build a fence down a few feet and up a few feet so nothing could go underneath or nothing could come above. And they would build this fence to guard their family and they would say, and this is what they would say. This is important. I don't want you to miss this. This is important. 
Okay, they would say this, we are building a fence around this garden because we don't want anything to come in and mess it up. <laughs> oh, man, that's... Whew. I mean, you're, you're just changing my life, dude. This is the most deepest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. I mean, I couldn't have even dug this deep if I had given somebody given me a shovel. It's ridiculous. Unbelievable. That's the same thing that he's saying about us. He's saying, look, I need you to build a fence around your family. Do you know what a fence really says to, the, to that? A fence that says this. This is what a fence says. I don't want you to miss this. It's really good. A fence says this. You're not allowed in here. That's not allowed in here. Let me give you some examples. When it comes to our home, our garden, our vineyard, we build a fence and we say name calling. That's not allowed in here. That's not allowed in this, in this, in this vineyard. When it comes to uh, uh, attacking the problem, we attack the problem. We don't attack the person because attacking the person, that's not allowed in this home of ours. Are you catching that? You see how the fence is being built? Going to bed angry, going to bed angry, that's not allowed in here. Being resentful and hanging on to it for year after year, that's not allowed in here. Okay, it's setting the boundaries that say, these are the things that are allowed in here, but these are the things that are not allowed in here. In Africa, I've been there several times. In Africa, there's a museum and I've been to different countries in Africa, but there's a museum in one of the countries of Africa, and, it, and you walk in, and it's got all these artifacts and all that. In one area, it's got these two uh, um, fossils of saber tigers. And one tiger, okay, it's a fossil, so it's a, it's a fossil. You see it all put together, but it was a fossil. They died that way. One of them had their mouth on the other one's back leg, kind of on their backside, and the other had their mouth on their backside. In other words, they went for the attack, and the other one went for the attack, and they both grabbed a hold. Just a reminder, this fossil is not mentioned in the Bible. Hold of each other, and they died that way. Isn't that interesting? They took those fossils. Do you know what the Africans named it? The Africans named that piece Pride. And at the bottom it says, because neither were willing to let go. Okay, for us and our families, we're just not going to allow that in there. Pride doesn't come into this family. Name calling doesn't come into this family. Put downs don't call, come into this family. Not believing the best doesn't come into this family. Going to bed angry doesn't come into this family. Not dealing with real issues and just ignoring conflict. Yeah, you don't need a crucified and risen savior for any of this. Like at all. I mean, what has happened to churches that this is what fills people's heads as preaching? This isn't preaching. This is just pop psychology moralizing. Yeah, we continue. Like, and being turtles and being teddy bears, that doesn't happen in this family. Otherwise, what's going to happen? The fox is going to come in, and Jesus, what he warned us, it's going to start tearing apart the family. Everybody get it? Good. Okay, build fences, and you got to build some big fences, and make sure that you build them strong. The second thing I want you to write down, just right out of the Song of Solomon, pull weeds. Pull weeds. Now, what happens with Song of Solomon? Why is he using the metaphor of a vineyard? Why is he using the metaphor of a gardener? Because that's how they made most of their living, was from farming. 
And if you know anything about, even in your own house, if you've got a lawn, my wife and I got this big sloped hill that had this stuff growing like eight feet high, and we had to tear it all out, and it's huge. And we had to pay this company to come tear So catch foxes, build fences, pull weeds. Oh, this is just going to change all of my relationships. <laughs> I've never heard anything like this anywhere. Oh, Tear it out from the roots, and they were shredding it. And it took two, it took six guys two days to even clean out that thing. It was an absolute mess. It was shredded every which way. Now, our current gardener, he's got to come in, he's got to spray that whole hill every week. Costs a fortune. We're trying to make a decision on what's best. Now, the reason we are is because it's costing so much money. And he tells me this he goes, If I miss even one week, you will notice right away. He showed up a day late one time, and I saw, saw the weeds coming up. And he said, you know, he goes, as a gardener, this guy tells me, he goes, it's amazing to me how hard it is to get a tree or a branch to grow. He goes, but weeds, I don't even need to touch it. They'll just overtake everything. That's the same thing that's happening here. Not only do we have to build fences in our family, but you know what those weeds are? Those weeds are underlying issues in our life. We all have them. What's your underlying issue? And my wife, a couple of nights. Sin. That's what the Bible says. Too bad you're not doing a biblical sermon. To go. She says to me, she goes, hey, what are you doing tonight? And she goes, is there anything happening? You know, you got any appointments or anything? I said, no, no. She goes, let's watch a couple movies on Netflix. We have to watch them on Netflix now because we're not allowed at the crossings. But, um, (laughs) for at least a month. But, uh, so we're watching, we we, we get a couple movies on Netflix and we watch them and we're hanging out watching the, the movies. And, uh, and you gotta know that it's hard to watch a movie with my wife because she gets all excited about it, but within 20 minutes she falls asleep on date night. Not good. Um, but you know, and she'll, and my wife, how many are married to someone that you are somewhat bitter at them because it doesn't matter if they're on a plane or stuck in an airport, they can fall asleep anywhere. Maybe got a wife or a husband like that. I got a wife like that. It don't matter. She can fall asleep. She can sit down. It's turbulence everywhere. And she's, a, and she's gone. We were watching. I remember two years ago, my son, my mom, come on, watch Star Wars with me. Watch Star Wars. It comes up on the screen. In a galaxy far, far, she's out. She can do it washing dishes. Out. She can do it on volleyball. Five, three service. Out. I mean, she can fall asleep. But she made it through the... He sure does like to talk about himself, doesn't he? I mean, yeah, I mean, we've learned like absolutely nothing about Jesus. Zero. Um, We've learned really nothing about God's Word. Well, we've got, so far, two verses out of context. 26 minutes so far into this sermon that goes about 40. And we have had two verses out of context... And we've learned a lot about Chris Songson and his wife. We've learned just hokum, nothing, zilch, zero, nothing about Christ. Yeah, that's um, a false teacher for you. These two, two movies. Now, towards the end of the second movie, I started getting bored. And I looked at over and I realized something. I said to her, I said, Laura, I said, I, when I was 19 years old, now here's my point. When I was 19 years old, a pastor told me, Chris, you struggle with self-worth. I said, what do you mean? They said, you find your self-worth in what you're able to produce. That's why you can't relax for a day because you feel non-productive. So then thus your self-worth goes down. 
Here I am. Now, I just want to make something clear that just because he says that a pastor is the one who told him this doesn't mean it's biblical. Just want to make sure you don't think that counts as biblical anything. It's not. I am 30 years later from that or 25 years later, whatever it is from that conversation. And I still struggle with it. And I told my wife, I said, I'm sitting here on this second movie and I'm, I'm feeling like an idiot, like a loser. It's been four hours and I've done nothing. Now, I know that sounds crazy to you, but for me, I don't know some of you people are thinking, oh, heck no, I can sit there for four days. Um, I don't relax. I don't like relaxing, and it's very hard for me. Now, yeah, it's so great that we're learning all of this about you, yes, because you are so much more important than Jesus to be preaching about. I get it, yeah, okay. How can that be interpreted? Okay, my underlying issue is self-worth. You don't want to spend time with me. You don't like connecting with me. You don't want to you don't want to just spend time with me walking on the beach or going to see a movie or walking through the mall. Walking through the mall definitely, but um you don't want to spend time with me. Now, my response would be that's not it. The underlying the weed, the pulling the weeds, the weeds behind of it, the underlying issue isn't I don't want to spend time with you. That's where the conflict is. The underlying issue is I have an issue with self-worth. And I have an issue that if I'm not producing, that I don't feel like I'm somebody. I'm just being transparent with you guys. But I promise you, that's my trans. No, trust me, you're not. It was no big confession to say, oh, yeah, I, I have issues with self-worth. Yeah, because what's the solution to that? Well, I really consider myself worth it. Yeah. Transparency, what's yours? What's, your, what's the weeds in your life? What is the thing that sometimes create conflict and it's not about the real issue, it's way underneath this self-worth, this jealousy, this insecurity, this fear, this difficulty. Tra- yeah, I swear, listening to something like this makes me think, you know, what I need to do is get into the fetal position and cry like Alan Alda. I mean, seriously, this is just ridiculous. Trusting people, this, this fear of abandonment. What is it that's underneath that causes it to rise and become a conflict? Because I promise you, the issue usually is not the issue. The issue usually goes much deeper than that. It's pulling the weeds. That's what uh, Song of Solomon was saying. He was saying, look, there's some weeds, there's some things. And I want you to notice something, though. <laughs> Where does this, yeah, what's the verse again from Song of Solomon to all the important weed pulling verses? I gotta find those and give them to my kids. You know, we got weeds out in our yard. I think it'd be fun to pull that card out and say, look, right here, Song of Solomon, pull some weeds. Just real quick, he said, and this is important. You remember what it said in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. Catch all the foxes, and I love this part. Don't miss this. Even the little ones. Isn't that interesting that he says that? He doesn't just say catch all the foxes. He says catch all the foxes. Oh, and also. Oh yeah, that that's just gonna, yeah. Yeah, my my brain just blew on that one. No way. Catching little. Totally forgot about the little foxes. So don't forget the little ones. I, I find it interesting that he would remind us of that because sometimes we ignore these little issues and we don't want to deal with that little conflict or we don't want to deal with that insecurity, that fear, that struggle that's inside of each of us, that self-worth that's inside of your pastor. We don't want to deal with that thing because it seems so small and it's no big deal and just ignore it. He says, don't, not just the big foxes, don't just build the fence for the big foxes, but those little weeds that seem to pop up and they create a small conflict into a big one because you haven't dealt with what's inside of here. Everybody get it? Good. All right. So let's move on. The last one I want you to write down is this, is provide water. Okay. 
Song of Solomon, he talks about a garden, he talks about blossoming, he talks about love. And you know what he says to do? He says, I want you to build a fence around it, okay? Then I want to make sure that you pull the weeds, but I also want you to provide water. Now, what are we talking about providing water? Because many of you in here, and this... (laughs) Yeah, wow. These people who attend this place think they're actually attending a church. They're not. There's, There's no reason to believe that that's a church. This is a challenge. Ready? We're going to bring it to a close, but I need you to really focus in. Many of us, our marriages right now and our families are really dry. They don't look like some blossoming, beautiful apple tree that's all gorgeous with red apples and green leaves. It's dry. It is not dry because God wants it that way. As a matter of fact, God doesn't because he's radically in love with you and he wants what's best for his kids. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. He loves you so much. And he wants a relationship with you. And he wants to blossom your life. The problem is, is maybe we didn't build a fence. Maybe we're not pulling the weeds, which is dealing with the underlying issues. Or maybe we're not providing water. Okay, it's a garden. It's an actual water. And when, it, when, the, when, the, when that garden or that, or that farmland or that vineyard doesn't get the water, it starts to die. Well, what does water look like for us? Well, in our relationship, maybe it's things like this. Maybe it's learning to prioritize your life and spending more time as a couple or spending more time as a family. Maybe that's it. Learn to spend more time. Write that down, man. Spending more time. We all know we need to, but we, then we don't. How about dating more often? I don't care if you've been married for a week or if you've been married for 50 years. You should have times where you go out on dates. Go out on dates. Take them out. Go out to a candlelight dinner. McDonald's won't mind the candles. It'll all work. Go out, be part of that, and have those times where it's just you and them. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, you know what? We're hurting financially. We can't afford dates. Doesn't that just spend money? Go for a walk. Do something, but spend time. This ain't about money. It's about effort. It's about being there. It's about watering that situation. Here's another way that you water your family and your marriage. Provide some leadership. Man, we talked about that a few weeks ago. There's some spiritual leadership that we as men need to provide. The way that we serve in the church, the way that we're involved, the way we worship, the way we lead our families, the way we pray with our families, the way we give when it's offering time. Come on, men. Be men and say we're going to lead spiritually. That's watering your family. How about, how about love when you don't feel like it? Be kind when they don't deserve it. Here's another one. Take away a chore. I'm giving you some practical ones here. Okay, My wife loves it when I wash the dishes. And she's like, ooh, you wash the dishes. And I like it too. I'm like, hey, I do. Do the hustle. You know, it's just great. She loves when I wash dishes. You know, and, and whatever it is that the wife normally does, men, take the chore away. Provide the water by saying, just they come home and that's taken away. And why? Uh, again, um, where are any of these taught in the Bible? I, the job of the pastor is to preach the word, right? By the way, in case you're wondering... He's going to try to circle back and make sure we got some Jesus time right at the very end of this uh, masleration. It has nothing to do with God's word. Technically, he's only used two verses out of context. Have I mentioned the fact that Chris Songson was on staff at Saddleback? Uh-huh. And uh, was there until he planted this church. So he is, well, he's a graduate, full-blown graduate of Purpose Driven University, if you would. We continue. Whatever your husband do, does, you take that chore away, whether it's, I don't know, change the batteries in the remote. Do whatever they do, you know, just something that would help them. 
I couldn't think of anything, guys. Sorry. We'll work on the 11:30 service, but uh. <laughs> I got other options now, but I'm going to stop right there. That's it. <laughs> Next week. <laughs> All right, we're moving on. <laughs> I got so many options. All right, here we go. I will say this. <laughs> uh, and I've said this a couple weeks ago. But, um, you know, my I've said this a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to remind you of it. My dog, Jack, he's like eight pounds. You can step on him and not even know what happened. So you, you, your dog is going to get more um, talk time in this masleration than Jesus? Oh, man. And because uh, I've done it. And <laughs> when we don't put water in his bowl, where does he go to get the water? He sticks his head in the what? Now, hold on. My thought is, Man, that's gross. Your head in the toilet's gross. You know what the deal is? He has radical needs, male or female. And if they're not going to be provided by me, he'll make sure that they get provided. That's a fact. Okay, whether or not you're going to water that family with love and affection or intimacy or communication or attention or time, I promise you that need will get met by somebody somewhere. You cannot, ex- you cannot deny that need, just like you can't do with my dog. He's going to get that water one way or another. And your spouse or your kids or whatever, if they're not going to get what they need in the surrounding of your garden and of your vineyard called your home, they will go get it somewhere. Be careful. Provide that water. Now, let me wrap it up by saying this. I think this picture right here may be a representation of some of our families. Do you ever really looked at this picture? It's a great, uh, our, our graphic department is amazing. And that picture right there, they're kind of, they're not quite back to back yet, but they're getting there, aren't they? You ever notice the hand? Notice her hand? It was like we were holding hands, but we're not anymore. Sometimes I think that can happen in our relationships and we don't even realize it. Maybe that picture right there is maybe a little bit of a portrait of your relationship. Maybe you're not quite back to back, but a little bit. And maybe, maybe metaphorically you're, you're, you're not quite holding hands. I mean, you're not totally separated, but not quite the way God would really want it to be. I want to challenge you a couple things. I want to challenge you to provide water. I want to challenge you to nurture the garden and the, and the vineyard that God has given you. I want to challenge you to yeah, get the foxes out, especially the little ones. Pull the weeds in your own underlying issues. Deal with those things. I want to challenge you to build fences so that you say name calling, go into bed angry. That just doesn't happen in here. I want to challenge you things. Just a whole list of don'ts. Yeah, wow. If you will start doing those things, I promise you, what's going to happen is your conflicts will get reduced. They'll be inevitable. But when they come up, they'll, they'll be done quickly, and you'll move to the next one, and they'll be done quickly, and then you'll go a month, and then you have a small one, but it'll be done quickly because you built fences, because you pulled the weeds, because you dealt with the underlying issues, and because you're daily watering the vineyard that God has given you. I promise you, God wants to turn your marriage around. God wants to turn your relationship with your kids around. God wants to fix the underlying issues of your heart. Present yourself to him. I want to challenge you to have a conversation that's meaningful this week. Oh, wow, yeah, that'll change everything. Maybe in the next 24 hours, maybe today, with your family and just say, here's where I'm struggling. Here's my underlying. Hey, pastor admitted his self-worth issue. Here's mine. 
Have some. Really? Oh, wow. Pastor admitted his self-worth issue. Good gravy. Honest conversations because you can never get to uh, intimacy unless you You do know it. The church I attend, we confess our sins. Yeah, before we start the church service. You're willing to go through the tunnel of conflict. And you got to be able to go through that in your life. Now, last thought. Last thought is for you that may be here today and you have found you that you don't really have a relationship with God. Now, listen, this is important. Oh, here, here it comes. This is the obligatory, somewhat evangelistic pitch thing here. But listen carefully to what he's saying. Is this calling people to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins by faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Or is this something different than that? Maybe you don't have a relationship with God. Maybe you've disconnected with Jesus. Maybe you used to at one point really be aligned with him. I mean, like you were aligned with him, but you're not now. Or maybe you got invited today and you haven't really made that commitment. Maybe you've been coming for our family series. You've never stepped across that line of faith. Let me tell you something. And let me read something to you, actually, from the book. Stepped across the line of faith. What is that? Where is that in the Bible? Book of John, chapter 10, verse, 20, uh, verse 14. John, chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus said these words. He said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own sheep. Jesus always referred to us as sheep and him as a shepherd. And he said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. We're the sheep. He's the shepherd. Now, the reason I read that verse to you is this. If you're in a place where maybe you're, hold on, maybe, maybe you're kind of placed with... Cue sappy music. This is to create the um, false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now working his way through the crowd and getting ready to do some serious business with some folks here, yeah. That's what the sappy music's all about. God looks a little bit like that. You're kind of going one way and you know you're not really aligned with him. Yeah, that would be sin. And by the way, uh, people who do that have earned hell. You going to mention that? You going to talk about the wrath of God and how Christ's, how death on the cross propitiates the wrath of God? You going to talk about that? Yeah, don't, don't hold your breath. He won't. <laughs> no way. Today's your day to change that. You know, my friend, Jerry, former missionary to Mongolia. And uh, while he was in Mongolia, he spent many, many years there. And he actually got a job being a shepherd to like 500 sheep. It's the coolest story. Ready? He says, sometimes I'd go out there and be like 500 sheep and he'd have to stay two or three days out with them. And he said, and sometimes you would look off, your sheep would be like, a half mile away and they're grazing got the dogs taking care of them and all that and then all of a sudden another herd will come over a mountain and that guy's 500 that lives like 20 miles away get blended into our sheep and he goes and now all of a sudden you got a thousand sheep and who's is who's and all that stuff and i said well how do you separate them how do you how do you make sure that you get your 500 back because maybe you get some of his unhealthy ones and you want your healthy ones how do you do that i love what he said to me he said Here's how you do it. He says, any good shepherd can recognize his sheep from the back. <laughs> Just, oh man, this couldn't get any worse. He said, and if they're wandering away, a good shepherd can say, 
that one is mine. If you've wandered away at all from God, if you're not in that place where you should be with God, if, if that picture looks a little bit like you and God a little, here's the deal. God says, I recognize you. I know you. Yeah, your back's kind of turned to me right now, but I got you. <laughs> Good gravy. Serious? The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost said to them, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, they were cut to the quick because <laughs> he preached law and gospel, right? You know, and here, with sappy music running in the background after giving us two verses out of context and telling us about how to resolve conflict, we're, we're now, we've now got Jesus going, I recognize you. I'm your shepherd. I've come to... Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, this, this is not repentance and the forgiveness of sins. I have no idea what this is. Maybe this is a hallmark moment or something like that. Yeah. Ain't forget repentance and the forgiveness of sins, but your number and I know you and I know your name and I'm calling you out and I want a relationship with you. I'm not mad at you. I love you. I love you. Could you explain to me why it says that Jesus's blood propitiates the wrath of God? Yeah, I would like to hear you have to explain that verse in light of what you just said. I love you so much. I gave up my son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that when you die... Why did he die on the cross? What was that for? died on this earth and faced eternity, you wouldn't have to spend eternity without me because of all the wrong things you've done on earth. Yeah, why does Jesus' death on the cross... Why is that the solution for all the wrong things I've done on the earth? Care to plug in that theology and explain that to us? But because of having a relationship with Christ, it makes a relationship with God possible. It makes eternity possible. If your relationship with God looks like that, trust me, right now, he recognizes, even though you're backside to him, he recognizes you and he calls you by name. He wants a relationship with you. If you're not in a place where Christ is the center of your life, I beg you, please. What does that mean? If you're not in a place where Christ is the center of your life, what does that even mean? Don't walk out that room. Let me say that again. Don't walk out that room. If you're in a place where Christ is not the center of your life, make it right today. Let's pray. It wasn't the center of your sermon. How? Oh, man. Pray together. God. Yeah, no, you don't get to pray. Good gravy. What a mess. And this is a large, multi-site, purpose-driven church. And Chris Songson got his start in pastoring by working with Rick Warren over at Saddleback. Yeah, great stuff, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, um, no one was really actually brought to repentance and faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Therefore, the kingdom of God did not really advance, and those people who may be Christians attending this building that calls itself a church, but I have no reason to believe it actually is, um, they were not actually built up in God's word. They were not taught God's word. He didn't preach or teach it, nor did he really truly preach Christ. What what makes that Christianity? What makes that a church? What even makes that a sermon? I didn't see any evidence for it being a sermon. I didn't see any evidence to believe make me believe that that's actually a church, and I have no reason to believe that Chris Songson's really a pastor. There's no objective evidence. I don't think he could be convicted of it in a court of law. Anyway, 
So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button. I'm maxed out on my friends. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. In the grace and mercy won by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.